Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I was in high school when I read uh, Ellie Wiesel's Night. Many of you maybe have read that as, as you uh, had grown up as well. And there's a quote that will be on the screen, and Owen's going to pull it up for us this morning. Uh, Ellie Wassell uh, records in this book that he, as a 15-year-old, was taken from his neighborhood in Germany and traveled three days by train car. They packed himself and his family and so many other Jews from his neighborhood into these train cars to the point that they couldn't even sit down. They, they had to stand up for three entire days. Uh, so many people packed into these train cars. And they took them to Auschwitz, the famous Nazi concentration camp. And in this book, he records being packed into these train cars and then getting off, and he separated immediately males and females. And this is the last time that he ever saw his mother or his sister again. And he records this. This is what he says. He says, Never shall I forget that night. The first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times accursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke uh, from the crematoriums. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams into dust. See, Wassell is looking back at this situation and he's saying, my faith died in that moment. My, whatever religious notion I had, my Ju- Judaism, my, my Jewish faith, it was gone. It was done. Recently, we've seen uh, the likes of, of some around us that grew up in faith traditions kind of recanting of their faith, whether it was uh, Josh Harris or, or a number of other uh, kind of prominent evangelicals that had kind of stepped away from the faith that they had previously claimed. The question that we have in front of us then is, what do we do when our faith is threatened by our circumstance? When the evidence around us seems to be mounting to show that our faith is wrong, how do we kind of engage with a world that shows us a circumstance that seems to be contrary to the very things that we believe in? It's in that context that I want to bring us to the passage that we have before us in Genesis 46 through 47. And where I, I think we'll see, what we, I think we'll see in this passage is that the servant of God trusts the promise of God amidst both blessing and difficulty. We're going to see this kind of in, in what looks to be like abundant blessing in the life of Jacob. Uh, the first thing is he's going to be, uh, Jacob is kind of made into a great nation as there's all of these descendants that move down into the land of Egypt and this recounting of all of his sons and their fruitfulness. And then in verses uh, 46, 28 through 47, 28, uh, God brings blessing to Jacob and to the nations. And so God, again, is, is fulfilling his promise. And then finally, in verses 29 through 31, at the close of our passage in Genesis 47, we're going to see that Jacob's still waiting for the fullness of God's promise. 
See, part of our, our thing that we have to do this morning is we actually have to read Genesis 46 through 47 with Genesis 12 in mind. And I want to pull that, that slide up in front of us. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God made this promise to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. If you remember when we preached this passage, we actually kind of broke this down into four P's of promise, right? I feel like a Baptist. I'm doing the, the alliteration thing, right? There's, God promises Abraham a people. You're going to become a great nation. He promises a, a place. Not only did God direct him to a new location, later on in Genesis 12, he'll say, all of this land I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. He promises him protection. God promises those, uh, th- those who curse him will be cursed. And then he promises him a program that in him... All the families of the earth will be blessed. And so it works like a checklist for us this morning, doesn't it? We can pull up our checklist here as Owen pulls to the next slide. Maybe the next slide. There it is. All right. The checklist that we have is people, place, protection, program. And we can kind of assess, okay, is this what God had promised? Is this the fullness of what God has promised? And even as we get to the the last of this chapter, uh, we'll kind of assess that as well. Well, we want to start in Genesis chapter 46, verses 1 through 27. So if you're with me, we're going to see that God is making Jacob a great nation. Look at verses 1 through 4. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So Jacob leaves his home. He leaves his home. He stops by at Beersheba. He offers sacrifices, and God appears to him. And this is what God says in in verses 3 and 4. First, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Remember, Jacob's leaving the promised land. He's actually stepping out of what God has promised him, and he's going to Jacob, or he's going to Egypt, and God is promising Jacob, hey, it's okay. You are allowed to leave. There's permission to go. Second thing he says is, there I will make you into a great nation. We've heard this so many times throughout the book of Genesis, that God is going to multiply the descendants of Abraham and actually make them fruitful enough that they would be called not just a family, but a nation. And so there's these 12 tribes that are already in place, the 12 sons of Israel, and now uh, God is going to multiply them. Third thing he promises, I will myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you up again. Remember, Joseph has had the presence of God with him in chapters 39 and 40 and God is reiterating that promise now to Jacob that he's going to be present with his people even in a foreign land. And then the final promise is that Joseph's hand will close his eyes. That when Jacob dies, Joseph will be present to kind of close the eyelid of his own father. Well, from there, from those promises, Jacob sets out in verses 5 through 7. Look at verse 5. Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had uh, gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. 
Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. It almost gets a little awkward. It's, it's a unique kind of family passage. In this passage, we see mentioned five times the offspring of sons or offspring is mentioned five times in these three verses. And that's not even to mention that in verses 8 through 27, we get a full lineage of Jacob's kind of progeny. We go through all of the 12 sons born to each of his four wives and get a sense of who their children are as well. So what Moses is doing is he's highlighting kind of the fruitfulness of of Jacob's family. But just when we think the promises of God are, are, are kind of moving forward, we have yet another thing that we didn't expect in 46, 28 through 47, 28. See, God is going to bring blessing to Jacob and also to the nations. And so this family that's on the move is, is going to be receiving blessing and giving blessing just as God had promised in Genesis chapter 12. So look with me as God is blessing Jacob in 46, 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph uh, to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen, and then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept uh, on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. What's happening here? Joseph is reunited with his father, Jacob. And notice Jacob's statement in verse 30. Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. This is a different Jacob than what we had before, isn't it? Uh, Jacob before, everything we saw was just bitterness and resentment. If you go back to 37, 35, when he first thought that Joseph was dead, Jacob's statements were, uh, I'm going to go down with sorrow into the grave. When he thought that he lost Simeon or when he thought he was about to lose Benjamin, he said, my gray hairs are going to go down with sorrow into the grave. And now he has this hopefulness as he finally is restored with Joseph. Well, what happens in 31 through 34 is that Joseph sets a plan into action. Look at verse 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to them, my brother and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now. Both may dwell, uh, excuse me, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. What's happening here? Joseph is giving some coaching to his family because he understands this Egyptian culture. And so he's going and he's saying, I'm going to go speak to Pharaoh and I'm going to tell him some very specific information. And then when you show up, you tell him the same information and this will kind of set us up well. Specifically, what he's happening is he's telling them to tell Pharaoh that they're shepherds because Egyptians don't like shepherds. Bottom line, right? For whatever reason, they just don't like shepherds. In other words, what Joseph is trying to do is he's trying to not integrate his family with the people of Egypt. Joseph is making plans to be a nation within a nation. 
that he's, as they move down into Egypt, they're not going to integrate. They're not going to intermarry. They're actually trying to become something separate inside the nation of Egypt so that God can be faithful to his promises. Well, what we see then is in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 47 is that Joseph and his brothers uh, kind of carry out Joseph's plan. Look at verses 1 through 6 of Genesis 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you uh, know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. See, verse 2, Joseph selects five of his brothers and they stand before Pharaoh and they do exactly as Joseph had told them. And they suggest, hey, we could live in Goshen, that would be nice. And so sure enough, Pharaoh says, hey, go and live in the best of the land. That's what verse 6 says. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. And he even offers them a royal job, right? If you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. This would have come with like unique benefits and protections. It was kind of like a cushy government job like today, right? I don't even know what I'm talking about. Sorry. But what happens next would have been absolutely shocking. It's one thing to bring your family in front of Pharaoh and to request a certain place. It's another thing for your old man to waddle up in front of Pharaoh and to bestow blessing upon him. Look at verse 7. And Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many days are the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided for his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. See, Joseph kind of pushes Jacob up in front of Pharaoh, and he literally has to prop Jacob up because he's too weak to stand on his own. See, Jacob is the picture of weakness. He's just been carried for miles from his home that he's left into a foreign land, and now he's not even able to stand of his own strength before the most powerful man in the world. And it's this person who has the audacity to extend blessing to the most powerful man in the world. See, what happens in verses 7 through 10, or 7 and in verse 10, is that Jacob blesses Pharaoh. We would expect the opposite to be true, wouldn't it? Wouldn't we expect the most powerful man in the world to extend blessing to Jacob? 
We would anticipate that Pharaoh, in all of his splendor and might, would, would say to Jacob, be blessed, be warm, be here. However, it's the opposite. Weak, wobbling Jacob extends his blessing to Pharaoh. Now, if we remember Genesis 12, it starts to make a little bit more sense, right? All the families of the earth will be what? Will be blessed in you. We've already seen Joseph bless the nations, but now Jacob is also blessing the nations. And what happens is verses 11 through 12 kind of give this summary statement of what exactly is happening that Joseph is fully providing for his family. He settles his father's family in the best of the land of Egypt uh, as they feed their their flocks and, and tend to their sheep. They have the best of the land available to them. He fully provides for them amidst a worldwide famine. And Joseph is the means of God's blessing to Jacob's house. But it's not just Jacob that will be blessed. If if Pharaoh is kind of a picture of that blessing that that God is going to bring to the nation of Egypt through Jacob's family, it kind of goes on beyond that. In verses 13 through 26, we kind of see a labor dispute happen. In verses 13 through 26, God is going to bless the nation of Israel through their interaction with Joseph. So look with me at verse 13 of chapter 47. Now there was no food in the land. For the salmon, salmon, the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that he bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Well, what's happening here? Joseph is going to systematically gather all of the wealth of the land of Egypt and bring it into Pharaoh's house. He is going to be a picture of God's divine blessing that he's bringing in all of this wealth into Pharaoh's house. And he starts with all of this money. Remember all the grain that they had stored up? Well, the Egyptians spent all of their money, every last dime. They were rolling pennies for food, right? And they roll it all up, they, they bring it to Joseph, and then they're out of money. So Joseph collects all of that. Verse 15, and when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. So Joseph collects all of their cash. Verses 18 through 19, or excuse me, verses 16 through 17, he collects all of their livestock. Look at verse 16. And Joseph answered and said, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. So he collects all of their livestock into Pharaoh's possession. And then he collects all of their land and, and their themselves in verses 18 and 19. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. And so Joseph collects all of the land and all of the people in servitude to Pharaoh. 
verses 20 through 22 kind of provide a summary for us. So Joseph uh, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's as Uh, For the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So uh, everything in Egypt that is not belonging to a priest is now in Pharaoh's possession. All of the money, all of the livestock, all of the land, all of the people belong to Pharaoh because of Joseph's faithfulness. So here we stop and we say, is this right? Is this good? And in our Americanized kind of sense, we thought, this sounds like communism, Right? I mean, everything belongs, Pharaoh controls the means of production, he controls everything, right? The question that is lingering in the back of our minds, if, if we're reading through this, is that has Joseph been fair to the people of Egypt? And I think God answers that question for us with clarity in verses 23 through 26. Then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is your seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Let's just take stock of what's happening. Joseph has provided for the people of Egypt. He's given them seed. He has given them work. And he allows them to retain 80% of their crop. And if we still had questions beyond that, we see in verse 25 that they willingly enter into this service. They said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. They see Joseph has saved them. They thankfully enter into work for Pharaoh. So we see it, right? God's blessed Jacob. God's blessed Egypt. God's blessed Pharaoh. But something's still not right. Something's still off. When we consider the checklist that we had in front of us, we had people, place, protection, and promise. There's some things that just still aren't present there. We still see that Jacob and his family are making long-term plans to settle in an area that isn't the land that God had promised to them. And what we see in these last two verses of our passage is that Jacob makes plans for this. Look at verse 29 in Genesis 47. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in, the burying, in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him, Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. See, Joseph asks Jacob to bury him with his fathers back in Canaan. 
Even while Jacob's family is becoming a nation, even while Jacob is being blessed in a foreign land, even while Jacob is being a blessing, the promise of God is only partially fulfilled. And Jacob wants to make plans that that God would allow that faithfulness to him. Jacob and his sons do not possess the land uh, that God has promised. And and Jacob wants to be returned to the land in hopes that someday he might be raised to new life. Even as Joseph is bringing blessing to the nation, it's only a prequel, prequel to what we will happen later, what we'll see later. And so Joseph agrees and he promises. What's going on here? We'll come back to our, our checklist, right? We come back to our checklist and we say, is, is there a people? Well, kind of, it's growing, right? There's 70 people that come from Canaan and they, they enter into Egypt. And by the time they leave Egypt at the uh, beginning of Exodus, they will be a, a nation in full. And so this, this, this promise is in process, right? Uh, is there a place? Do they possess the land that God has promised them? Well, decidedly not. They're, they're not in Canaan. They're in Egypt. They're in a foreign land. They're not there. Is there protection? Yes, abundantly so, right? God, in these last chapters, has so protected uh, Jacob's sons and his family that he's actually made provision for them in a foreign land. Well, what about uh, the program of blessing the nations? Well, that's partially being fulfilled even here as God is just blessing Egypt through Jacob's family and Jacob's son, Joseph. See, upon first reading, it's tempting for us to see that the promise of Abraham is nearly fulfilled. Joseph is blessing the nations. Jacob's sons are being fruitful and multiplying. Jacob is leaning on his staff and blessing Pharaoh. It seems like everything's right as rain, like everything's just coming together perfectly. But when we look closer, we realize that Jacob has had to leave the land which God had promised. And further, Jacob describes the day of his life. In in chapter 47, verse 9, he describes them as few and evil. Did you pick up on that when we read it? Jacob looks back and reflects upon his life and he says, no, the days of my sojournings, that's my wanderings because I don't have a home that I I place, you know, my tent pegs in. My days have been few and evil compared to those of my forefathers. Jacob's lived a hard life, hasn't he? I mean, it's filled with tension and difficulty. I mean, he has, in his history, he has lied to his father. He has stolen his brother's blessing. He has had a knockdown, drag-out fight with his uncle Laban. He's come back, and he's had these just rough and rebellious kids that were just literally murdering people. His life is filled with tragedy as well. He's, it's the loss of his wife, Rachel, in giving childbirth to his youngest son, Benjamin. It's the loss of his own son, Joseph. It's the seeming loss of his son, Simeon, and the possible loss of his son, Benjamin, the near starvation that he experiences in Canaan. And what all of this culminates to is this understanding that the faith-filled life isn't always easy. We look at this and we say, Jacob leaves a hard, difficult life of faith. We talk about the concept of faith as if it would make everything sunshine and bubbles. Isn't that the way we talk about faith? As if it would just put a nice shine and gloss on our lives? As if all of the narratives of our lives, the difficulties that we face, would find themselves nicely wrapped up neatly like the latest sitcom that we watched. Here's the truth about faith. 
What faith does is that it pulls future tense realities into our present tense living. Faith takes those things that God has promised that are far from us, and it moves that hope into our present reality, not because they're realized, but because they're hoped upon. Faith is being sure of what we do not see. We're so familiar with this passage, and I want to pull it up from Hebrews chapter 11. The author of Hebrews writes writes this. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation, not condemnation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. See, what we see in this passage, especially in verse 1, is this kind of definition and this clarification of what genuine faith is. In fact, it kind of extends all the way through this chapter as, as God gives us example after example of all of these men who exemplified faith. And when we get to verse 1, we see this clear statement. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. See, our modern-day statement that we, we talk about hope, we say, man, I, I hope this or that happens. We say this phrase as we anxiously wring our hands. We say, I hope uh, that we won't have to wear masks this fall. I hope that I'll get like a 50th stimulus package, right? I hope that all of these things would happen. I hope that my parents don't pay for our, or my kids don't pay for our debt generations from now. That's another thing, right? Faith is different, though. It's not just, I hope for these things. It's assurance. It's confidence. Imagine, if you will, just standing in the mountains, and you are on one peak, and you need to cross to another, and there is a rope bridge that stands between you. I mean, imagine full-out Indiana Jones section where this rope rope bridge is there. And you're supposed to step out upon this bridge to get you from here to there. Is that not an expression of faith? In order to first step out onto such a thing as this, you must have faith that it can do what it is there to do. See, specifically, faith is the assurance of our hope in God's promise. The author of Hebrews is about to give us example after example of living faith. In verse 4, he says that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. In verse 7, he says, by faith, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. In verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. See, all of these examples change their present action because of faith in a future which God had promised. They actually amend and change what they're doing based upon the future reality that God has extended to them. In that way, faith pulls the future promise into our present moment right here, right now. See, what the author of Hebrews does is he lines up all of these examples of faith And he he talks about in verses 14 and 16 that all of these greeted these things from afar, that they never actually saw them come to fruition in their life. And such is the case with Jacob here, isn't it? He has all of these promises, and yet they don't possess the land, and they don't see themselves as a great nation. Uh, Abraham's the same way, and Isaac, even to some extent Joseph. 
But what happens is the author of Hebrews culminates all of this into Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll pull up this passage as well. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Read this in verse 2. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, we can talk about Abel, and we can talk about Noah, and we can talk about Abraham, and we can talk about all of these men of faith, but the culmination of the expression of faith was shown to us in Jesus Christ. Of all the examples of faith, Jesus tops the list. Jesus was willing to trust his Father even to the point of his death and forsakenness by God. Remember when Jesus prayed in the garden in Matthew 26, he says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He expresses massive faith. And it's with that this morning that we put in front of you that no man has ever exhibited more faith than that of Jesus Christ. He's not just another example, though. You know, if we do that, if we set Jesus as the example of faith and say, hey, be like Jesus, be a person of faith, you and I will always fail. We'll fail every time. We'll falter, we'll spin our wheels, we, we just won't exercise good faith, we'll forget. But the good news is this morning that when the author of Hebrews sets this in front of us, when we look at what he says about Jesus, We're to look to Jesus, not just as an example. Look at what it says. He's the founder and perfecter of faith. Jesus Christ founded faith. He started it. He built it. He's perfecting faith so that it is perfect and flawless and mature. That is, Jesus starts and finishes our journey of faith. He isn't just an example to try to attain to. He is the one who accomplishes that very salvation for us. If you're here this morning and you're worried about the quality or the presence of your faith at each individual moment, we stop and we recognize, no, the object of our faith is the only thing that is flawless. You and I can possess weak faith. We can stand on the rope bridge, as it were, and be nervous, but still be on the rope bridge all the same. See, I bring this before you this morning to bring this. Durable faith is a connected and integrated faith. Those are great words. They sound very hip and very modern and very new, right? What do I mean by connected and integrated? What I mean is that the state of Christian faith, which sees present realities in light of future promises, is what we would call saving faith. Paul says it like this in Romans 8. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
It's like he puts in front of us a scale and he says you've got the glory that's shown to us, that's promised to us in Christ and the present sufferings and always the glory will be more weighty than the sufferings that we face. And so if you're Christian, you're banking on the promise that God is going to give you something unique, something majestic that is coming to us in Christ. That there is no comparison between our present sufferings, as difficult as they may be, with that which I am promised, the glory that I am promised to behold. See, when I speak of faith as integrated, we might also call this saving faith. And we do not differentiate between integrated faith and real faith. What we're saying is that real faith looks to future promise to get through present hardship. We might state it another way. Real faith isn't satisfied only to be present at the moment of death. It's not only for fire insurance, as it were. Rather, real faith banks upon the promises of God in the face of sin and suffering, difficulty and disease, death and life, blessing and wealth, whatever it may be. All of these things are viewed through the lens of God's precious promise and His ongoing faithfulness. I say this because I'm afraid. I'm afraid for our present reality, not just here. Yes, I'm afraid for some of us here. I'm afraid for our present reality as the Western church. I'm afraid for uh, the way we express the gospel in so many different ways that we live and walk in a pseudo-Christian world. You recognize the word pseudo means false. It's kind of a fake Christian world where we pray, go to church. We might even be lightly familiar with the claims of the Bible. But when push comes to shove, we aren't banking on the promises of God. This week I was just reflecting on some of the things I've heard, whether said to me or said to other ministers that I know or other friends. And these are some of the statements that we've heard. I understand that This is what someone else has said. I understand that Paul wrote that. I just don't like what that passage says. Another person said, I choose not to turn to those passages. Someone else would say, I believe God gives eternal life to those who are thankful for him. Someone else, when their sin was exposed, they said, Doesn't God just want me to be happy? Can I just suggest that these faiths will be abandoned at the first sign of trouble? We are tempted to abandon faith when we have too high a view of this world's pleasure and too low a view of the world's to come's glory. If I'm primarily devoted to an easy life, I have little patience for suffering. But if I seek glory to come, viewing with my eyes the glory of Jesus Christ, this world's difficulties are bearable. See, in this way, faith can endure its seeming contradictions to our present reality. If we look to the glory to come and we hold it to be weighty and worthwhile, 
no difficulty on this side of our death will be too much. Because faith is assurance of future promise, it will naturally find conflict with our present realities. You ever think about that? If faith is holding on to the things that are coming to me, to holding on to this presence that, or this promise that I will be in the presence of God, it's holding on to the glories that will be revealed to us, faith will sometimes seem illogical to those people that we rub shoulders with. It will seem foolishness. Faith will seem unprofitable to some that we rub shoulders with. It'll seem like a waste of our time and our efforts and our energies. Faith will seem contradictory to the things uh, that the world values and loves. See, this morning we are called not to be a people with a vague spirituality. We are called to be a people with a drastic faith. A faith that leaves its homeland for the promise of God. A faith that trusts that a dead Savior will show up on the horizon on a horse and usher in his final kingdom. You and I are called not to just a ho-hum reality. We are called to integrate the promises of God into our every action. It's to this end that I want to pray. I want to pray that God creates that faith in us. You and I, we can't just drum up the strength to do so. We recognize that Jesus is author and perfecter, that what he started, he will bring to completion. And if he's calling us to a more drastic expression of our faith, a a, a robust sense of our faith, he'll bring the power and the ability to do it. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we ask now that you would accomplish the things that you have set us to. Lord, when you called us out of darkness, you promised to bring us into light. We trust that you will accomplish exactly that. Help us to be people who bank upon your promises, who trust wholeheartedly in the things that you have promised to us in Christ. Allow us now uh, not to live in just a, a partial faith that specific hours of my week are engaged through the the way I believe, but instead allow us, allow our hearts to be fully integrated with our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.